There's no such thing as crop insurance. It is revenue insurance from top to bottom because you are insuring the gross revenue per acre of whatever crop it is. All right. Hi, everyone. We are here for, I guess, episode seven, John. Wow. Yes. He's been been moving. I think so. Um, We're really excited to have Alan Gubert here today to talk about all things food and farm policy. Um, Alan Gubert is an award-winning agricultural journalist and expert who was raised on a 720-acre, 100-cow Southern Illinois dairy farm, similar to John's upbringing in that way. That must have been really really fascinating. After graduating from University of Illinois, Alan worked as a writer and senior editor at Professional Farmers of America and Successful Farming Magazine. Then Alan returned to Illinois to establish his freelance writing business and served as an editor to the Farm Journal Magazine. He then wrote Farm and Food File in 1993, which appeared weekly in more than 60 newspapers throughout the United States and Canada. Throughout his career, Alan won numerous awards and accolades, including the Writer of the Year and Master Writer from the American Agricultural Editors Association. And Alan and his daughter, Mary Grace, collaborated and wrote The Land of Milk and Uncle Honey together. It sounds really, really sweet to have have gotten that experience to write together. And we are really excited to talk to Alan today. Thank you, Alan, for coming on this podcast. My pleasure. I think to start, I was really fascinated by one of your recent posts, Alan, that said broken systems raise costs far faster than resilient ones. And I would love for you to just explain what you mean to our listeners and sort of walk us through where we are in this political and just economic moment and talk a little bit about this broken system. Well, I'd be delighted. That was a column that I wrote about two weeks ago, three weeks ago now already about comparing uh, the economic systems that we are that are at the core of most foreign policy and most really federal uh, governmental policy. And there's always been a tension in, in the U.S. government uh, and local and state governments, too, between supply side economics, which gave it rise. It was in 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan. And then what we all, we all classically trained economists call Keynesian economy. Well, they, they couldn't be more different. One, one comes from the left, the Keynes, and one comes from the right, if you're looking at a political spectrum. So they're very opposite. And yet, you find defenders of both. I mean, defenders to the death of both. And you wonder, how can both of them be right? Well, that's, the simple answer is they're not both right. One's wrong. And we've proved time and time again, that the wrong side was the supply side because in the federal uh, adoption of supply side economics always featured tax cuts, massive tax cuts. And the principle behind all of that was if the, you cut tax rates steeply, you'll increase tax collections steeply. Now just think about that. I mean, any farm person knows you can't do that defies not only logic, but physics. It, it just won't happen. And guess what? It never has. So, but we, we continue to beat up the system over those, over those differences. And the, the political war remains between supply side economics and Keynesian economics. 
And so here we are today, we've got a democratic administration that has very Keynesian actions that took in the last two years to pull the country out of this enormous, what, 18% unemployment just the 18 months ago because of COVID. And nobody's an expert at this, so they started fueling inflation. And here comes the, the battle again. Here we are. We're going to fight over taxes. We're going to fight over economic programs. What we do know is when you have that fight, you weaken the system. You weaken those systems because nothing gets done. But you particularly weaken it under supply-side economics because there's no money for government. And government, by this, by then I mean, I'm not just programs like food stamps, uh, you know, public housing, public works. But, you know, you're also talking about farm programs. And so it's amazing. The, the big debate in agriculture is, you know, we've spent about, in the Trump administration, about $60 billion on farm programs despite the fact that the Trump administration and farmers are diametrically opposed to government programs. So this is how it manifests itself. And did we strengthen agriculture? Did we strengthen rural America? Did we make it better? No, what we've done is we've concentrated power more and more in the marketplace in fewer and fewer hands. Right. Right. You've got, you got to distribute the power in order to, to, to ensure that the system builds from the ground up and builds resiliency into it. Yeah, there was a an economist by the name of Polanyi is what I call his name that wrote uh, the Great Transition back in, I think it was either the forties or the fifties. He said this whole idea of uh, of supply side economics we would call it now uh, it was kind of the classical theory of economics. He said that whole idea was dead. It had been thoroughly discredited by the nineteen fifties. Well, we find it come roaring back in the nineteen nineties. But it, you know, it's 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 amazing to me that. That in spite of all of these political differences, the, the two parties come together and they su they support this industrial agri-food system. That's the most fragile kind of food system that you could possibly uh, create. You know, it's very efficient in terms of of just pure economic efficiency of producing large supplies of, of uniform product that go through the system and go all the way from the production level to the to the consumer, as if it was on an assembly line. But if you if you disturb any part of that system, the whole system collapses. And and what we've had is is we've had agricultural policies basically that that have propped up agricultural systems, just like our our government policies prop up the big financial system that's so risky that depends on all the leverage and things of this nature. I say, you know, our farms have become too large to fail, just like our banks are too large to fail, and so. Uh, they call on the taxpayers to come in and bail us out during times of crisis, like the COVID pandemic. You talked about $50, $60 billion. A lot of that was just extra money that was put into the system because it would have collapsed without it. Well, the, the interesting thing about it is, as you see, these, the specialization take over, not just in, in policy or economics, but also in agriculture production. Right you make the system less resilient, less capable right. of reacting to market situations, global situations that you see right now, the, the war in Ukraine, there's no resiliency in the system. We've seen prices, commodity prices explode. So what's the policy, the ag policy answer to this? Oh my gosh, we gotta, we gotta change all these programs right now in order to grow more food. Why don't we just 
sit back and, and, and just take a second to examine where we really are. And what we discover is that we don't need to do any of the recommendations that big agriculture, industrial agriculture would take. It just, first of all, think about it. We want to expand or open up more acreage to increase production. Do farmers have something against high prices? Why would they be against $7 corn and $16 soybeans? Yeah. And this is good news. It's good news for the government, too, because farm program costs go down. It's the first thing they advocate, though, open up six or seven million more acres of production to what? Drive prices down to where government has to intervene again. Yeah. So that for, just on the face of it, it's a terrible prescription. And yet here we are, we're talking about it, seriously. And to your point, John, I think what we talk about it, why we talk about it seriously is nobody really understands agriculture anymore from not just a producer standpoint, but even just an economy-wide standpoint. You know, you and I, are, Mackenzie, we're all deeply involved in agriculture, but in reality, it's 1% of the GDP in this country yeah. anymore. Right. 1% of all the people employed in America are employed in agriculture. So it doesn't really get a lot of attention because it, a lot of people don't give it any attention. It's, 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 it's really way down on their list. And yet, as my dad would say, people still three times a day bend their elbow. And it's yeah. that important. The Farm Bureau and other groups are asking the USDA to open up this conservation land so they can grow more food because of the war happening in Ukraine. If higher prices would essentially be good for them, why are they asking for that then? You would think they'd be happier about higher prices. John, you, you probably have an answer to that. <laughs> well, I, I think they're, they're responding to what they think the consumer is concerned about. The consumer is concerned about inflation right now. The programs they're talking about is not going to have any impact on inflation uh, very little impact to begin with because we only spend less than 10% of our income on food. And then there's about uh, one seventh of that, about 14, 15% of that's at the farm level. So it doesn't make a whole lot of difference what happens at the farm level in terms of consumer prices, but the, the, the consumer has been led to believe that it does. And that's the reason they support a lot of farm policy programs and things of this nature. So they're responding. They're saying the consumers expect us to do something about price inflation. So if we, if we bring more land into production, if we change our export programs, if we do things of this nature, then it'll appear that we're doing something to respond to consumer concerns. Whereas in reality, it's not going to have that much impact. I, I tell people, you know, it really doesn't make much difference to consumers what happens on the farm anymore, because like food is such a small proportion of total consumer expenditures and what happens on the farm is just a small percentage of that that it, it really doesn't make much difference in the long term, whether cost of production are higher or lower. What does make a difference at the consumer level is when you do have a disruption in the supply system and then you end up with a scarcity, then you have the food system, the retailers and processors raising prices to take advantage of the profitability and to ration out the lower supplies because people want to continue to eat. Like you say, you know, you bend your elbow three times a day so, so what makes a difference in prices are these short-term fluctuations in supply of product and, and, you know, what happens within the system. It's not the overall cost of production or how much land we've got in production or things of this nature. We saw pretty easily that we could devote about 40% of our corn crop to producing fuel within a period of 
you know, six, eight years, something like that. It took to adjust. And then pretty soon we're back to surpluses again after that. Well, what we, what we do see in the Ukrainian uh, Russian situation is, is overstatement of the problem. Right. For instance, we know that uh, in the global wheat market, Ukraine and Russia account for about 30% of all wheat exports. But if you examine it a little bit more closely to the really the amount of wheat that that is in Russia, for instance, that's only 7 million metric tons. And I say only 7 million metric tons because Russia's wheat crop last year was 770 million metric tons. So we're talking about less than 1% of the total Russian wheat crop that's not going to be sold in the international market. And we're running around like a bunch of chicken little, cluck, cluck, clucky, over 1% of the Russian wheat crop. No way will 1% of any nation's farm produce affect you know, yeah. hunger, global hunger, or, global, or, or bring on global famine. And, you know, I am usually, or John, too, are usually accused of being the Cassandras here. We're trying to give you the good news. <laughs> We're not going to starve, people. And no matter what the American Farm Bureau Federation says, is this not true? Why do they do that? I think they want attention. I think they want to drive policy. I think they have a larger ulterior motive in the background than that is to be yeah. this is all part of season the grounds for the 2023 farm bill which you yeah. know won't be written this year it'll yeah. be written next year when the hopefully according to the farm bureau the republicans will be in charge and then they can start running the table on the wish list of big ag and the wish list of big ag plant 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 they want more acres of everything because then they have more throughput they have more government programs they have more chance of, 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 of uh, solidifying, you know, their acreage spaces and everything else. It's, 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 it's a bunch of ch- tail chasing and they're using, uh, they're using this crisis to benefit from it. Right. So, so we got the farm bill discussions already started for 2023. And, and one of the questions I was going to ask you kind of touched on it is what do you see kind of in the difference of the agenda and what could, what could be passed? If we have a, a Congress that's dominated by the Republican Party as opposed to the current Congress that's dominated by the Democratic Party, but what do you see in terms of being different? There's going to, they're going to continue to support industrial agriculture, you know as well as I do. Democrats and Republicans both do that, but yeah. where would the where would the differences be? Do you think? Well, they'll be on the margin. I would presume that they'll tweak the the crop insurance program and try to include more crops. Try to you know, compromise more different farm groups to get into the farm, the crop insurance programs like vegetables, the fruit growers, nut growers, things like that, uh, the high value crops that are high, are high risk. So that there will be basically zero opposition to renewing a crop insurance like program. What about initiatives like you were talking about the, the proposal for the rural prosperity program or restoring prosperity? What would be the fate of that with, let's say, with the Republican administration? Well, I, I don't I don't think it'd be very good, but I, I wouldn't bring it through the through the Ag Committee. I would bring it through a different committees, you know, government services or some, something else. If you want to, this would be in, in the proposal that I read is a White House office. OK, so that would become through the Governmental Affairs Committee. Uh, keep it out of agriculture because once you get it in agriculture, you get big ag hands all over it. And they like they have really big hands and they can strangle anything they don't want. There's a real necessity 
far far a, a better real program. And I have some figures here that are just just it, it, just mind blowing. This is where we are, John. You and I remember growing up on a farm. Sure. Granted, it was in the in the fifties and the sixties, and, and you know, and we we're both university bound by the nineteen seventies and the yeah. into the eighties. But we remember rural America and 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 what it what it all delivered. I mean, the the, the real sense of community that we had because it was a community. We remember right. going to town and sure. my local area was Friday night. Everything was open at nine o'clock for the farmers because they were an enormous segment of, of the local economy. Right. Now, my brother who farms down in Southern Illinois still, he doesn't think about anything of buying a 24 row corn planter in Alabama or a semi-trailer truck in Thunder Bay, Ontario. He's done it. Uh, you know, he, 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 you know the, the market's their market is global. Their market is as far as they can drive in two days. You know, anywhere. But here's some numbers that are just, I just think are striking. If, if you live in rural America, you earn 82 cents for every dollar your urban counterpart in. So you're starting out behind the game at the beginning. Right. If you live in rural America, you're 22% more likely to be poor, 19% to be more food insecure, hungry, and 15% more likely to not have health insurance. So just that's simple base. That's why COVID went through rural America like a side. You know, it just, just slowed down rural America. And yet fewer percent, fewer than 1% of all people who live in rural America work in rural America. They actually work in agriculture, fewer than 1%. And, and and that includes mining, that includes fisheries, fisheries, that includes forestry. Fewer than one percent of rural Americans actually work in rural America. And what do we hear promoted all the time? Uh, uh, industries like ethanol and meat packing as rural development. They're not. No. You know, I, I, I looked this up. I, I was kind of curious. You know, there's 42 ethanol plants in Iowa, and the average number of employees in an ethanol plant. I'll be generous and say that it's 30. When I know they're closer to 20 or 15, because most plants, once they're up and running, they run themselves pretty smoothly. Right. So the state of Iowa, 42 ethanol plants, you're talking about less than 1,600 people employed by the industry of ethanol. And yet, Iowa is breaking its back trying to figure out what to do with carbon pipelines to serve the ethanol industry. <laughs> it's not going to bring any jobs or any real, any economic development to rural America. When you look at a rural town, the three biggest three biggest industries of any rural town, and I hesitate to call them industries, the three biggest job creators in a rural community, school, your local school. That's why most rural communities fight so hard to keep their rural school. Second, the local bank, they're good jobs, usually with health benefits, used to be anyway. And third, the local elevator. You know, because they hire a lot of seasonal help. That's about the job creators you have in a rural community. Right. So what is it you, you can do anymore? You know, the state of Illinois, my home state right now, you know, it's a general election, 2022. Every state house seat in Illinois is up for grabs. And that's the state legislature. You know, the state, we have a bicameral, so we have, you know, state, state house and state senate. In every rural state house race right now, not one Democrat is running. Think about that. Not even a two-party system there. <laughs> no, not in rural America anymore. And of course, 
Uh, Illinois is a blue state because of its urban base, you know, Chicago. So there's no question the Republicans won't get control. They won't. But the only representation rule America has is one side that's not going to get anything done in Illinois, which I can tell you that right now, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, a bill is not going to get passed by the Democratic legislature in Illinois for rural Illinois. So that when we start looking at how we've divided this system into a, a group of have and have nots, rural America is definitely in the have not politically, economically, health-wise, food-wise, and yet 20, 22%, 23% of all rural Americans depend on government, social security, school lunch program, you know, SNAP benefits, uh, 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 Medicare, Medicaid. So what, what can they do through the Department of Agriculture? What, the Farm Bill always has rural, rural policy issues. And then uh, I'm not sure of the percentage now, but the uh, government uh, nutritional assistance programs claim, what, 75, 80% of the budget. It varies from year to year. It was up to 80. I think it's down to around 75 now. So, you know, what can be done in those areas that would improve the well-being of rural America? We, we know we're, that, that the agriculture programs aren't going to save rural America as long as we continue to subsidize the thing that's destroying them. But what can we do to alleviate some of the danger or some of the harm? Well, this goes back to resiliency also. You can start encouraging farm programs that, uh, that would promote resiliency, promote diversity. I'm not opposed to farm programs. People oftentimes read what I have to say and say, well, you're against, you're against crop insurance. That would be like being against the flag in, in the United States. I mean, while you have the right to be against the flag, go ahead and try to do that in rural America. You know, you get yourself shot. But uh, why don't we have a dual system? Why don't we have a system for the base and everybody who wants crop insurance and then have a program over here a second ladder for for actual producers who want to grow food for your local community. We see there's two things going on right now in rural America when it comes to food. You're seeing this great divide become wider. You know, the bigs are really getting big and they're so big now. I'll give you a perfect example in the last 10 years, in my view. Look what's happened to farm equipment dealers. I'll bet there isn't 15 farm equipment dealers in the whole state of Iowa. I know there's not 15 John Deere dealers in the state of Iowa because one dealer might have 30 stores now, 30, and, and take a quarter of all of Iowa John Deere business, one dealer. So we, we've seen that in the last 10 years, and it's, it's, it's all the economics. They can't support the, the farmers. You know, I know Illinois Farm Bureau best because my brother Richard is the president of Illinois Farm Bureau. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, they claim 80,000 members. Well, there are about 8,000 full-time members who farm in Illinois. But if you do that, you say there's 8,000, Illinois has 100 counties, kick out 10 counties as urban, you have 90 counties. That's fewer than 1,000 farmers per county that are left, producers. Uh, so why don't we have a secondary system? For every dollar you want to spend on farm programs, give Give my brother and his cohort 70 cents. But give this group 30 cents, please. Develop markets for them. Develop uh, small federally inspected packers and, and pay the packers. Don't expect the, the farmers to pay for the packing. I, have a, I got a good, farm, good friend who raises uh, and, and owns a federally inspected organic slaughter facility for his sheep 
cattle, and chickens. He has three inspectors in his, in, his, in his packing plant every day when he slaughters. Three federal inspectors. Tyson Foods can kill 2,000 hogs an hour around the clock and has no inspectors. Right. So that's just a crazy system. So we can we can have we can call it share the wealth, call it split system, call it double ladder. I don't care. But let's have a parallel system that we're financing at the same time, so that when this system fails, and it will, you have that resilient secondary system right now. And the second thing that's going on in in, in this, we're, we're we're gutting the system right now. Though we're not supporting it, we all know the the rise of organic food. But there's a huge battle going on in organics right now over the actual meaning of organics. And in Iowa, it's kind of the center. You have a couple of people, organic farmers in Iowa, who really are, we're at the ground floor of building organic systems in the National Organic Program in the, in the 1990s. And now the big food, and then by that I mean, you know, General Foods, General Mills, Cardinal, Pillsbury, they've all seen the profitability of organics. Well, they're all getting into organic and they're changing the system. So right now you can have, you can buy tomatoes around, around the year round that are organic, but they're grown in and hydroponics. That's not an organic system. So we've done things like that to just undermine this resilient system that's rising, make it harder and make this system rise even better. That's, that's just crazy. Yeah, we had an interesting interview with Jeff Moyer of Rodale Institute, and then we had a podcast episode with Lindley Dixon of the Real Organic Project, and Real Organic Project is, you know, basically farmers who are for organic, but are really trying to up the standards and not have hydroponic be part of it, and so that was interesting just to compare those conversations. Um, John, I know you probably have some thoughts around the crop insurance ideas, so I want to let you respond to that. Um, but I, it just made me think, I, I heard a stat recently that just when we're talking about the consolidation of agriculture, that 3.2% of U.S. farms account for 51% of the total value of the nation's agricultural production, which still blows my mind. And I know it's consolidated, but that is pretty crazy that 3.2% account for more than half. Um, bef- before we... Uh, jump back to the crop insurance piece. I wanted to ask you, Alan, um, you know, you're saying a lot of folks in rural America rely on food stamps, um, don't have health insurance. Do you have any sense of what percentage of, of folks living in rural areas do support you know, universal health care or do support more investment in SNAP and, and food stamps? I think, no, there's no empirical evidence uh, or polling that would indicate what those numbers are. But you would say, well, not that I know, but you would say, well, obviously they're in favor of these programs. And yet, when you look at the representation that they have, especially through Congress, and again, I'll lean back on what I know in Illinois, in in the rural congressional districts, there's only one person in rural congressional districts in Illinois that's actually on, uh, you know, promotes these programs. And she's leaving Sherry Busto. She's retiring. Uh, the rest of the, the Republican members of the Ag Committee from Illinois are, are you know, they're, they're doing everything to strip means test 
in other words, uh, food stamps and other benefits from, from this. How do we make sense of that? How are people not, you know, out on the streets furious about this fighting for, or continue to vote these people in? We've long known that poor people don't vote. We long, we've long known that unhealthy people don't vote. And now we've spent the last two years making it even harder to vote. I now live in Wisconsin and we have a Democratic governor in Wisconsin, but a, a tightly a supermajority Republican state house and state senate. You can't believe what liberal, progressive Wisconsin has done to really limit the amount of voting that'll go on here come November. I mean, they've eliminated mail-in ballots, they've eliminated drop-in ballots. You now have to have two witnesses if you have a mail-in ballot. They have to be signed. And it's incredible how hard it is going to be to vote. So, and that's all designed to make disadvantaged or under-advantaged people uh, less heard from. Because their goal, again, is supply-side economics. It's to pair government. Government's the problem, as Ronald Reagan said. Uh, so we need to eliminate the government. And yet, you look at, I don't know, one farmer, not one, that's ever declined a farm program benefit. And keep in mind, farm pro Amish farmers, I know I have, but farm programs, are all voluntary. There's not a mandatory rule in any of the farm programs we have in this country. Something on the, the, the farm programs and the voluntary part of it, and going back to the crop insurance idea, I think there's been a transition over time to put more and more of the money into crop insurance. The last I saw, uh, the government pays about 60% of the overall crop insurance in terms of what's paid out, plus they pay for the administration of the program that's run through private insurance agencies, but the government's paying for, for all of that. And the other thing is like you, you were saying, uh, there's no requirements. Whereas we've had kind of conservation compliance and conservation requirements on earlier farm programs. Now in the crop insurance program, there's really no limit in terms of how much they can pay out to an individual operator, no realistic limit, not with the LLC things that are going on today where you can, divided up, but there's no real limit and there's no requirement for any kind of conservation practices. Now you can, you can get extra payments by doing things like cover crops, or you can get uh, coverage, you know, by splitting your nitrogen fertilizer, for example, then if you, if you don't make a crop or can't get on for the second application, they'll give you some lenience there, but there's no requirement that you have to do anything. And the government's picking up 60% of the cost of it. And so I think what they're doing is they realize that, that these ideas of having these big payments go out to people like movie stars and sports stars that, that just happen to own the land and the right to government payment, that wasn't tenable. So we just switched it over to moving the same subsidies through the crop insurance program. And that turns out being even worse than before because basically now we have crop revenue insurance where you can insure not only the yield, but you can insure the price. I spoke at a conference in Washington DC one time when they had uh, a bunch of the big farmers in there. And of course I was criticizing industrial agriculture. So they invited me to sit with a bunch of the big farmers for dinner that night. <laughs> they were all bragging about how rich they were and how they had uh, second homes in Europe and things like this. And the one guy was explaining to me how he could go out and he was leasing all the equipment and hiring everybody and, and leasing the land and the government but through government programs, he was basically ensuring he was getting at that time, something like two or $300 an acre for every acre of corn he yeah. planted. And he yeah. could have planted the whole County. 
Well, that, 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 that goes right to the core of what's wrong with crop insurance. I mean, it's the crop insurance, just a phrase, right? You're insuring the crop. Well, the federal government's picking up 62% of all the fees. It runs about $80 an acre higher this year because the prices are higher. The prices at which you can insure your crop at are higher. So, but say you have car insurance, you wreck your car, you get your car fixed, right? Or you get a new car. You have homeowner's insurance, somebody burgles your house or it burns down, you get it, you know, you, you're made whole. You get your TV set back or you, they, they build your house. What if you have a crop failure? You don't get the crop back, do you? We're insuring revenue, as John noted. Yeah. So what you get instead is you get the money. The taxpayer gets to pay the bill 62%. And incidentally, the administrative and overhead costs run about 17%. So if you crop, if you sell crop insurance, you lock in 17% of your of, of the overall fee as yours. So you get the taxpayer picks up 62% of that overall cost. And because there's been a crop failure, they pay more at the grocery store for the failed crop. So they get there is no such thing as crop insurance. It is revenue insurance from top to bottom because uh, you are insuring the gross revenue per acre of whatever crop it is, or per tree or per pound or whatever. And then because of the vegetables and fruits, and uh, you don't get any more food. Yeah. So it, 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 it's a system that is designed to ensure that the farmers get paid, but not the people who actually do the yeah. paying. So it's no other, no other, segment of the American economy outside of politics, perhaps Congress people okay. have guaranteed income like that. I can't, right. I can't think of anything other. And it, it doesn't do anything. Like I said, for resiliency. The idea was we'd go to crop insurance and then we wouldn't have disaster payments and we haven't demanded the disaster payments. We had big payments for the trade disruption. We had big payments for the COVID that were special payments over and above you know, crop insurance or revenue insurance. Well, the, the other, the other thing too is, is like you, you know, you noted about these farmers who farm the system. Well, they don't farm; they they manage money. I mean, uh, John, you probably said it in some of your classes that you taught, and I know I heard it over and over in the classes I took in the in, at the, the big U and land grant U. Is uh, professor stand in front of the room and he'd look at us and he'd say, "Boys," because we're all boys. Boys, you know, farming is no longer a way of life. It's a business. Right. And now I'm going to teach you each of that. And boy, did we learn. We learned and we made it into a business, my generation. And along the way, we lost the whole concept of what a farm really is. Right. It's not an asset to be managed. You know, and, right. and, what, and the greatest, you, you hit it on it earlier, what's one of the greatest faults of farm crop, of, of crop insurance is, no cross-compliance. You have no real uh, rule on how to farm. You can farm any way you want to maximize and minimize your crop, maximize pollution, minimize runoff. You can do anything you want. There's no federal rule against it. That, that, that can be changed immediately and should be changed. Well, Mackenzie and I were um, with a group of people, actually, that developed a proposal we called the uh, what regenerative agriculture and the green new deal we proposed in there shifting from commodity-based programs like crop insurance to 
to ensuring uh, absorbing the risk of, of farmers that want to transition from industrial agriculture to regenerative agriculture or new farmers that want to start in it. And the idea we had was basically going back to the original intent of, of the farm bills in the 1930s, which was ensuring family revenue at parity with or family incomes at parity with non-farm incomes or on par with non-farm incomes. And we were saying, uh, if you put together a plan of a transition or beginning agriculture, that you would move toward a regenerative, sustainable kind of agriculture that eventually is going to you know, rebuild the soil fertility and things of that nature so that it's productive and you can generate profitability, but you got this transition period, that during that transition period, then the government would basically ensure uh, family incomes on par with non-family incomes in whatever area that you're farming. And if you do better than that, that's fine. You don't get any payments, but if you fall below kind of the family income for your area during that transition period, uh, then the government would basically make that up in the same way. Now we're paying crop insurance to make up for yield losses or lower prices or whatever. We just make it up for the whole farm system. And then you could transition a whole farm system without being concerned about specific commodities or things of that nature, but you'd have to have the farm plan approved. And then you'd have to be making progress toward developing kind of a, a self-sustaining economic system at some point in the future. What do you think of something like that? Oh, I think it's, I think it's, it's the, the, the basis of it is very sound. I want a farm program that pays for soil conservation, clean water, better air, better quality food, a local economy. And I don't know, what, what's an acre of a soil loss cost an, uh, an Iowa farmer a year? You're losing anywhere from two to 10 tons of that soil. What's that soil loss cost to that farm to, right. to, to society? If it's $10 a ton or $40 a ton, I'll pay you $15 or $20 a ton to save it. I mean, that's how important that's going to be. And nobody, John, nobody is talking about farm programs based upon critical natural resources like soil, and now even more critically, water. Right. I talked to a farmer yesterday in Western Kansas. He's retiring. And I, and I, I asked him, uh, he, he grows wheat and corn in Western Kansas. Now he's down in the feedlot areas of Southwest Kansas, about 50 miles from the very heart of the Dust Bowl of the 30s. And so, it just blows my mind. You drive through there, you, you think you're in Iowa, and they're all center pivots growing corn for corn silage and corn feed for the feedlot. And I said, do you do you irrigate? Oh, oh, we got to irrigate. We, it's 18 inches of water a year they irrigate with. 18 inches. That's a and foot and a half acre feet of water every year that they put on to grow that corn. But he said, I quit. I quit irrigating because I did the math and it took me 2,500 gallons of water to grow one bushel of corn. Now think about that. That's mind blowing. 2,500. In California, each avocado is that you eat anywhere in the world. And keep in mind, we export about 65%, not avocados, I mean almonds. We export about 65% of all of the nut crops in America to Asia largely. Each almond is a gallon of water. We can't do this. Right. We're going to need that water in 10 years or in five years here in California. 
you're going to need that water in Southwest Kansas. You already need it. So why are we paying either through cross-compliance, tougher rules, or direct payments for these natural resources and grow better food through regenerative, sustainable? I don't green. I don't care what you call it. Let's do it differently, at least on a portion of our land. Right. Well, what, what we were talking about with our proposal would be that you would have to develop a farm plan that took into consideration those things, that you're reducing soil loss, using water efficiently, using the resources. That would be part of this overall farm planning process. And I think a, a big part of that would have to be if you went toward a regenerative agriculture, you would have to create agricultural systems that were consistent with what you could do in a particular place without exploiting the natural resources and without depending, depleting the water or eroding the soils and things of that nature. I was uh, listening in or it was part of a, a conference yesterday, sort of a webinar out in California where they were talking about the programs they have in California now paying carbon credits for the big confinement animal feeding operations, primarily the huge CAFO dairies out there to yeah. put in methane uh, collectors, collecting methane gas. And they had an economist there from, uh, I can't remember, University of California, I can't remember which campus, but the economist was, was pointing out that when you add up all these subsidies that they're giving on these dairy cows, it ends up to being about $1,000 a cow in, in subsidies that are being paid to put in the generator. It come out that the revenue from the generator was more than 50% of the total revenue from selling milk. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and keep in mind that the, the money that they got to build, most, a lot of the money to build those methane digesters came from USDA EQIP program money, Environmental Quality Improvement Program. So the American taxpayers are paying for it. And not only is it California, but the California program it's inspiring Midwestern dairy farmers to do the same thing because right. they can quote, put it in the pipeline and qualify for the California payments. Yeah. And I know the professor you're talking about, he's just, he's just doing what all land grant professors do generate, you know, value by showing local farmers, you know, generate intellectual value, property value for himself at Davis or where Chino and, you know, by showing local farmers how to milk these programs. And that's why dairymen are so good at it. And yeah. they, these programs, they're, they're just crazy. We don't need the energy. We don't need the manure. And they say, they're so profitable. If you double your cows on your farm, you'll make even more money. Right. And we'll save, we'll save even more, you that's know, right. uh, the environment. And it's just, it, it's totally upside down. Going back to the example with the Kansas farmer, so the fact that building healthy soil can sequester carbon, save water, you know, increase the microbiology, all of these things, where is the missing gap there? Is that knowledge that these farmers aren't getting or is it seen that building healthy soil is a partisan sort of hippie issue? Is it the university ag extensions, their faults that no one is really equipped with that sort of knowledge to assist farmers with that? Why? building healthy soil be like a bipartisan winning issue and reach these farmers if it seems to benefit everyone. I'll start and John can back clean up on this. Uh, you don't have any farm programs that take that kind of those elements into consideration. In fact, the farm programs you have now that really pay for massive production 
are the exact opposite of what you need for those programs. The way we've designed livestock systems around the country now, the CAFOs guarantee dirty water, guarantee pollution, guarantee an external cost to, to the public. And we do it all, all those things we do in the name of cheap food, because we somehow have this idea that Americans want to eat food that's cheaper and cheaper and cheaper each and every year. And statistically, it, you know, on a scale of, you know, uh, the, the percentage of income we spend on food keeps going down. But that's only because our incomes keep going up. I mean, if you're making more money, you spend the same amount of, 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 of your income on food, the actual percentage you spend on food goes down. But half of the money we buy used to buy food is spent in gross in, 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 in um, out of the home meals, McDonald's and restaurants. So that's 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 the first indication. We don't have a farm program that pays for quality. And the second thing, and I would just add this in, we've developed a political system now that worships private ownership. And anytime you talk about public good of, 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 of a government program to save soil or save water or clean air, all of a sudden you have the American Farm Bureau and the other farm groups getting on private property rights and they sue and they sue and they sue. And they're, they're not winning arguments, but they delay, delay, delay. And we saw that in, for instance, the American Farm Bureau Federation fought clean water laws, federal clean water laws, in Chesapeake Bay, they lost, but it took 17 years for them to lose. So it, these, these are luxury liners, these farm programs and these farm groups. They take years to turn around. And leadership has to change, focus has to change, the economics has to change. Yes, I would just say very briefly, I, I think you know, everything you said, Mackenzie, just really makes sense. Why would you be opposed to that? But I think, uh, like you were talking about, the people who are defending the status quo, anytime you see the emphasis shifted to something like, oh, we've got to rebuild soil health and this sort of thing, you know, their their position is farmers are the, the original conservationists. We're taking good care of the land. We don't need programs for that. But but the whole idea is is they don't want to give one inch. They're afraid that if they give in on any of these programs like rebuilding soil, uh, soil fertility or water quality or things of that nature, then that's just going to be the leading edge of this whole environmental movement that's going to come in, like you say, and take away property rights. And pretty soon they're going to lose their programs. And so they defend every one of them. I was involved in a, in a, I guess you would call it a court case in, in Michigan where the Farm Bureau and others were they were suing, uh, carrying out something like a lawsuit. I never understood the nature of the legal process against the state of Michigan because they had, had made changes in the manure management program, which I considered to be very modest changes in terms of adding to some setbacks and reducing some or changing some method of estimating the phosphorus in the soil test or something like that. But, but they were putting the state of Michigan through this whole, this whole legal process I, there's no telling how much they were spending on lawyers just for a minor change in the manure management program that they objected to. They didn't want to give an inch on that program. I'll, I'll add one more thing that is imperative that needs an, uh, a change. It was not by accident that when we set up government in America that the land 
the public lands went to the United States of America or federal. All, so these public lands, is massive amounts of public land owned by the federal government. Federal government doesn't own one gallon of water. All the water rights are devolved mm. to the state. And this is a patchwork quilt of laws that make it incredibly difficult to manage any kind of national water program or national resource program that you think would happen. For instance, California, first in, first out. I mean, first in, if you were a family that had been here since 1848, you've got incredible water, access to water. If you signed up in 2008, you're gonna farm, you know, dry land. There, there's just no water for you. And in Colorado, it's different. Illinois, it's different. Every state is different. So that, it, that's a mess. It's a rat's mess that needs to be sorted out. It's sort of scary to think about. I know in South Texas, the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, they're doing some interesting studies of farming without much water. And it's scary to think that that's sort of like we should all be paying attention to that because it's going to sort of be the future, unfortunately. Um, we talked a lot about the problems. I want to ask you a little bit about any solutions, any, you know, policies you're keeping your eye on just in the legislative session and also just for the 2023 farm bill. I know you mentioned this bipartisan bill that's being introduced for the for an office of rural prosperity in the White House. Maybe you can just touch a little bit more on that and what the significance of that would be or just and anything that you feel positive about even with your your state if elections I don't know which way that will swing with the Senate but yeah, just in general, anything that can give us hope at these times. Well, I, I, I like to I'd like to be more hopeful than I am, but you know, the, any coordination that would that would examine how these current programs work at all. Some of them don't work at all. Some of them are not funded. We've got massive amounts of, of, of cross uh, pollination going on. Any office that would put that together and 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 train up local leaders to use these programs would be a huge benefit. They're not, overall, it's, all these programs aren't that much money. They're not even the largest portion of any farm program or any farm bill. So you put a billion dollars or $2 billion out there in, in, in soil and water conservation programs, local community markets, uh, local community food uh, uh, gatherings, you know, uh, hubs, things like that. All these things would be of great value to rural communities. And then, of course, be very careful and put some hard caps on farm program payments. You know, I know a bunch of farmers have two and three and four farming entities. They follow, Each entity qualifies for $990,000 of farm program benefits each and every year. It doesn't come into play very often, but when it does, they're made whole. <laughs> They milk the program like it's crazy. We need some hard cap. Senator Grassley talks about it all the time, but that's all he ever does. He just talks about it. He's never you know, put one hard bill on the floor. I mean, if, if some Republican did that, we would make some progress. You can't be giving farmers a million dollars each and expect them to change. And, you know, if you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, the old saying goes, you can always count on Paul's vote. So, and that's what we see in ag programs. Paul is always voting because right. Peter is the poor guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, John, do you have any anything to add? Any questions? 
No, I, I, uh, I think we've had a, had a good discussion. Of, you know, I'd like to be more optimistic myself about how we can bring about some changes. I think the idea of, of uh, focusing, at least bringing some more focus to the, to the rural situation. And, you know, I've, I've written papers on what I call the economic colonization of rural America. And we've basically used industrial agriculture as a means of, of a colonizing, extracting, exploiting the people and depleting the natural resource base and things of that nature. And so I think if we had a, a major program that focused on revitalization of, of rural America, it would at least bring attention to that problem and people would begin to wake up and see why rural people are upset about what's going on. They've, you know, decades of exploitation will lead to resentment. Well, where I, where I lived in Illinois, we saw it firsthand when I, when my wife, Cam and I moved back to rural Illinois in 1984, we moved to her hometown at a town of about 2,300 people, grade school, high school, a couple of doctors, a couple of dentists, everything else you'd want, hardware stores, banks, everything. When we moved out in 2020, uh, to move closer to our family. None of that was there. The school remained, but everything else was gone because there was no economic purpose for it anymore. The elevator was still there. The school was still there. The bank had been sold probably three times in those 30 years. No grocery stores, no hardware stores, no doctors, no dentists, mm. no, no hairdressers. In fact, couldn't get my hair cut in town. So you know, if you're not going to take care of the local community, you shouldn't be surprised that nobody lives in the local community. And then the whole value, the tax value of that whole community just kept sinking and sinking and sinking. And now it can't support anything. It can't support its own police. It can't support its own fire department. And raising taxes on those who are left is the worst solution because then you're going to drive them. And there's nobody wants to talk about these issues because they appear insurmountable. And they, in many instances, could be because we haven't really talked about them ever. Instead, we've talked about getting more money to people who don't need it in farm programs. Well, I think the, the future, positive future for rural areas could be as, as very desirable places to live. You know, I've written for years about the possibility of revitalization of rural America because of the internet and everybody working distant location but you have to create desirable places to live. And that's just the opposite to what you've described here. Right. We're creating undesirable places to live, where if we created desirable places to live, you have more space, you have the possibility of clean air and water. We don't have it, but we have the possibility of that scenic landscapes, you know, a degree of privacy, a sense of belonging within a community that's small enough that you know people. All of those things are, are positive. If, if you can create the kind of, uh, you know, kind of foundation, and that's what I see regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, is kind of this geographically fixed foundation that you can build on so that you can build a place that's a desirable quality of life where people want to live there. Uh, they just want to live in a farming community, a farming community like you and I grew up in. Right. A lot of people would love to live in today if we had those still left out there. I would love to live in it again, again. I, I would love to return to that feeling of comfort and warmth and, and, and safety. You know, say we give, I mentioned the Environmental uh, Quality Improvement Program. Say that's a billion dollars a year we spend at USDA, doling out largely in grants, you know, how to improve the environment. About 700 million, 70% goes to big ag, who are creating 
all the problems, 100% of the problems. Right. That program could be $5 billion a year. We have years and years of backlog, people who want to improve the environment, but there's no money because the equip program is limited. And why is it limited? Because the big hogs are at the trough and nobody else can get to right. it. We can solve that problem. We're a rich nation. It's a matter of priority. And if we have priorities that focus on food, focus on farms, focus on community, focus on families, and, and, and what we all want, it happens. It, this is America. We can make that happen. And it's not that hard. I think that's a good positive note to wrap up on, Mackenzie. Yeah. And I was going to say, for our listeners, if you missed it earlier, Alan mentioned this bipartisan bill that's been introduced in Congress called the Rural Prosperity Act. And that would essentially create this Office of Rural Prosperity in the White House. So keep your eyes on that. Cool that it's, you know, support from both sides. Um, yeah, Alan, it's been really great learn, learning a lot just from listening to you. Uh, we like to leave our readers, our listeners, sorry, with one thing that they can do. Do you have any advice for you know one thing that people can do to improve this situation after they finish listening to this podcast well wendell berry always said that eating is a you know a political act it's an agricultural act in this country agriculture believe it or not is is very political get informed make a phone call go to a public meeting your voice is important uh you know I say if, if a, a politician gets two or three calls on one topic in one day, that's big for those politicians. That's all they need. They need input. I am always impressed. I don't care what color their politics are. I am usually always impressed when I meet senators and congressmen and state representatives. They really are well-intentioned people who want your ideas. And, and they're open to them. So don't be afraid. to. Uh, uh, as a member of the public, to approach a public servant. These, these programs, it's the only way this is going to change. You have to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great, great note to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you, King, our editor, for editing this podcast. And Alan, it's been so great to have you on. Good to visit with you again. My pleasure. Stay well, John. Bye-bye.